This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey guys, please check out our proud partner who are sponsoring this week's episode 80.LV. It's the best place for game developers, digital artists, animators, video game enthusiasts, CGI and visual effects talents to learn about new workflows, tools, and share their work. It's a wonderful resource to evolve and develop your pipeline. They have awesome articles going out every week. There's an amazing article right now that you can check out about how isometric environments are made. The environment artist Paul Fish talked about his experience building detailed maps for popular RPGs. In addition, we are proud partners of Polycount. It is the best community on the internet for professional, hobbyists, or student 3D video game artists. If you're looking for work in progress threads, looking to get critiques, or give critiques if you're a professional, and just overall improving your work as you are progressing, be sure to check out Polycount. We want to give a shout out to our patrons out there, anyone that is supporting us. We are very thankful and happy that you are helping us in a very big way. So if you want to support us and you like what you're listening, go to our patreon.com forward slash Unchained. And if you just want to talk to other listeners, join our Discord community and find that on our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. All right, let's get into this week's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all over the globe, the world, wherever you happen to be listening to me, it's Larry Charles, one half of the Game Dev Unchained podcast team. That's right, the number one podcast talking about video game development and the lifestyle of. And someone who's been making games professionally just as long as I have, but twice as good looking, Mr. Brandon Pham. Hi, this is all true. This is Brandon Pham. Welcome to this <laughs> week's episode. Also welcoming our other as handsomely awesome guest, Edwin <laughs> McCray. How are you doing, Edwin? Yeah, I'm very good. Good to be on the show. Thanks, uh, Brendan and Larry. Yeah, this is awesome, man, talking to you uh, for the first time. <laughs> Why don't you, uh, at this point of the episode, uh, we usually ask our guests, you know, kind of give us uh, a little background, a little bit of your resume, just to, you know, give our uh, listeners an idea who you are. Sure. So, um, yeah, so I'm a narrative designer. Um, so that basically means that I do all the story stuff in video games. Now, and that can mean anything from coming up with you know, world ideas for a game developer, developing characters, doing all the idea and concept stuff right at the beginning, um, all the way through to doing dialogue scripts, um, flavor text, and um, in-game text, you know, right at the end. So, uh, yeah, so I guess uh, narrative designer is a little bit different from just, say, script writer or writer, um, because the biggest thing is we've also got to wrangle game mechanics. So we're working with game designers and making sure that the uh, the story, you know, plays nicely with with the mechanics and and that the story never gets in the way of the mechanics. It's probably the most important part of the job. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, yeah. I mean, how, how did you fall into uh, the role of narrative design? I mean, as an artist myself, it's very like a, a simple track. If I want to become an environment artist, you go to school for it and uh, become a junior and eventually to a senior. You know, even for Larry, I des- uh, like a level designer, with, there's like a, a track in school and stuff that he usually would follow or people like uh, that in that position would follow. How would I become a narrative designer if I just want to get into it and know nothing about it? Well, at least now there are courses around, so you can, um, you know, do uh, various tertiary courses. Universities are offering them now. Various, um, uh, what, oh, like for instance, in Auckland now, there's the Media Design School, and they teach narrative design. Um, AUT in Auckland also teaches narrative design. So these courses are popping up. But when I started seven years ago, there was nothing around. There weren't even any international online courses on um, narrative design. So actually, the first the first book I read on it was Steve Ince's book. Um, I forget the name of it now, but that was the first one I read, and I was flicking through it and just going, "Oh wow, this is this is exactly what I want to do." And I was writing for TV at the time. Mm-hmm. I was uh, a storyline, a scriptwriter for New Zealand's um, most watched show, Short the Street, which is a hospital soap opera. And, um, but I was thinking at that time, and I'd been doing that for four years. And I was thinking at the time, I was like, no, I want to, I want to see what's out there in video games in New Zealand and, and internationally, see if I can do this. And that, that book got me started into it. And, and then I kind of learned as I went along from there. Did you have a, a prowess or fervor for writing in your very early ages? You know, did your early developmental years kind of lead you towards this career path as well, or do you kind of discover it later? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I grew up on a sheep farm in Southland, <laughs> New Zealand. So, you know, about as far away from civilization as you can get. And my nearest uh, schoolmate, my friend who I go and play with was like 10 kilometers away. So naturally I spent a lot of time by myself and, mm. uh, you know, dreaming and thinking up stories. I read heaps and then, um, yeah, I just started writing way early on. Uh, my mum gave me a, her old typewriter when I was eight, and I used that to recreate Lord of the Rings, or my version of it, and then went from there. Um, and then, uh, again, like, there wasn't a lot around... I think, no, I was interested in video games from the word go, and there wasn't a lot around, even at that time, as far as um, storytelling in games. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I went into drama teaching for a long time. I think that's where I learned a lot about interactive storytelling and and you know improvisational storytelling, all that sort of stuff. Um, but then when once you know things started happening in the um, games industry a bit more, and games actually needed stories, um, then um, yeah, I ended up meeting the guys at uh, Grinding Air Games, uh, Path of Exile. Mm-hmm. I met them at um, an Auckland game development meetup back when there was only about 30 of us to fill the room. There's, you know, there's usually <laughs> 300 upwards now and game development meet- meetups right across the country. And, uh, and yeah, so I connected in with them and that was my first um, narrative design gig. So when you go there to the, the meetup, do you have any like OG privileges? Like I was here when there was only 30, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I say that and, but, and all the young ones just kind of like shake their heads and <laughs> politely, politely ignore me. <laughs> 
That's awesome. That's so good to hear you're part of the community. Yeah, like you were t- kind of talking about like your, you know, you, you transitioned from TV to games um, and how you broke into the, can you kind of like uh, expand on that? Like how difficult it is as a writer in both industries to, to break in and is it one more difficult than the other or is it about the same or is it just connections? I think... I mean, my timing was good. Uh, I mean, I was breaking into the New Zealand games industry just as it was starting to take off. So, yeah, I accidentally picked my moment well. Um, I wouldn't say it's easier to get into than television. Uh, actually, my whole experience with television with it was that it was a, a ruthless... It was like living in a feudal monarchy uh-huh. where you're basically a serf and the producers are lords and, you know, <laughs> they can come and slaughter you at will. That's, that's <laughs> what they do. Um, so uh, while I, I learned a heap on, on television um, about, you know, all sorts of things like wrangling lots of different characters and wrangling different storylines all at the same time and all good skills that I then applied to games, but I immediately found the games industry far more, I guess, friendly and open and experimental and willing to try stuff. And, you know, but again, it's a little different here in New Zealand because, I, I mean, going to get games, I guess, could be called a AAA now because it's got over 100 staff now. When I joined them, there was only like mm. half a dozen. Um, nice. And we've got one other games company, Pickpock, who are, they have about, 300 employees i think they're pretty big but everyone else is indies so you know i think i think that made the industry here a lot more welcoming uh i yeah perhaps rather than knocking on the door of a triple a when it comes to writing specifically uh obviously you write for characters on television you write for characters in games uh are there any techniques that i guess carry over from one to the other or are there any sort of subtle changes that you have to do when you're writing for games instead of writing for television maybe you can answer both parts um yeah definitely i mean yeah there's a lot in common i mean the basic uh, techniques of creating a character are still the same like what i'll usually do is in fact i look to film and TV characters as my first reference points. Um, because again, storytelling in games is so, so young, there, there's still quite a limit of really kind of powerful, recognizable characters. Whereas, you know, TV and film, they've been doing it so much longer. So there's a plethora. I mean, I ruthlessly mine Game of Thrones and um, Stranger Things and, Westworld and shows like that all the time and I'll be inspired by a character and then I'll look at, okay, how can we fit that into the game? But yeah, where it gets different is uh, when you're putting a character into a game, say it's an RPG, you have to think about the function of that character, like what's it actually there for? Because it's probably there to be the item vendor. It's probably there to be a quest giver or, um, you know, something like that, which means the character has to, you have to kind of build the character around that purpose. Otherwise there's just no reason for the character to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever fish your own relationships for character inspiration? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, every writer does. Um, uh, I think, you know, everything we experience is pretty much fair game for ending up in our writing with the names changed and situations are made all muddy, of course. 
Um, and uh, funnily enough, I think um, you, you get, a, you get uh, I mean, you can use all the conflicts in your life, for instance, are brilliant fodder for then putting into character situations. And you just remember those arguments you've had in the past and um, what they were about. And then you can just play them into the characters, change the situations, but you get the feel for those dynamics. So. Um, yeah, if, you, if you've had lots of arguments in your life, then you've probably got a good uh, basis, good, you know, good lineup of stuff you can use as a writer. Well, you, you were talking about like kind of like the, not the birth, but like when the game industry in New Zealand was about to blow up and you, you caught it at the right time. Um, yeah. So like going into a team like uh, the Path of Exile team at a, when they were still small, how, how was the transition when when did you start feeling like oh my god this is starting to become a thing we're hitting success now i'm meeting all these people i gotta try to remember names but not really <laughs> how was that um i was probably insulated from all of that because i've been a a, um, a remote worker mm -hmm. the whole time um <sighs> So, yeah, it's quite nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I started doing that actually in TV because I, I transitioned from being a storyliner um, around what we call the table of pain where you're you know, stuck there for days on end trying to <laughs> beat story out of each other um, to being a script writer, which means I could take it home and just send it in. And um, so even though I was living in the same neighbourhood as the Path of Exile guys, as, uh, just up the road in Titarangi, um, which is a really lovely foresty part of um, Auckland. I ended up only going down to the office a few times because um, we communicated by Skype and all that sort of stuff. And, and then it was through Google Docs and various tools, it was easy to actually just do most of it from, from home. And then when I moved out of Auckland, it was easy to just keep doing that. So uh, that means I haven't actually had to remember that many names. Like I know there's like over a hundred people in the company and I probably only know about half a dozen of them or maybe, maybe a dozen. So is that something that, uh, you would have to kind of negotiate and get things going or is it just an understood thing as, as a writer is like, Hey, I work at home. Yeah, of course you work at home. Why would you be here? <laughs> I mean, how would I work that deal? You know, as an artist it's a little tougher. <laughs> It can be, yeah. Uh, well, I know. I think I think for artists um, and and to a certain degree, game designers as well. I think we can all do it, but I think we do have to make a choice. It's like um, I've not yet come across a full time gig that has allowed me to work from home. Right. Like it's always right. part time freelance. Um, and if you're if you're cool with juggling, like I'll have up to six games that I'm working on at a time. If you're cool with juggling projects and, um, you know, running your own little business and being prepared for the fact that next month you may have no work or way more work than you can handle, mm -hmm. um, then, yeah, the, the whole work from home thing is can really work for you. But, yeah, if you want a, a full-time gig and you're looking at, say, a AAA, then um, I think they're pretty much all in office Mm -hmm. you know working as part of the team so yeah it depends depends what you want to do really all i can say is i'd rather get laid off and already be home is all i'm saying 
<laughs> Save myself that annoying like cardboard box walk. Like, okay. Yes. <laughs> oh yes. And uh, call. The- right. <laughs> But I mean, it is. It's very. It, 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 it's it sounds hectic maybe at first, but once you get your your rhythm and your 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 jobs that you're balancing all together, you know, having six jobs sounds way more secure than depending on one. Uh, that oh, yeah. may or may not work, especially in the game industry. And I, I do feel like any creative job, uh, it of course is up to the individual. Uh, to succeed at it can be done remotely like i feel like uh if any time i need to jump on a call you know i'll talk to you for five minutes and then that's it but most of the time of the day if you really look at it you're mostly at your office with the headphones on anyways yeah i i have a desk at home <laughs> i don't need to be here <laughs> but yeah it's, it's a weird type of thing like i feel like uh there's still that mentality where you know you got to be here so i can rule you and yeah. <laughs> make sure that you're 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 doing your work but i feel well, like i'm more productive at home most times i i i totally and uh like i found that i could remember you know it's my story storylining short and street days um we could go home for a day and write up a, a storyline but while i was in the office it was just like Oh man, there's so much talking about crap. That just, just <laughs> yeah. wasn't work. And then I had a similar experience um, working for Good Game Studios in Hamburg. So I went over there for three weeks and, and worked in studio with them as as a kind of narrative consultant on a an RPG they were doing, which mm. um, that all ended a bit tragically. I don't know if you heard about the whole Good Games uh, implosion. They uh, what happened. The, the, the company basically halved in size. They, they overextended themselves and then just went, oh, man, we don't have enough money for all this, and then went, Phew. and oh. the game I was working on was one of them. Um, oh, man. So, but, yeah, oh, man, they, working in an office, it was just meeting after meeting after yeah. meeting. Like, yep. I, would, I would spend six of my hours in the day in meetings and then two hours of writing. It was... Mm-hmm. Oh. It's crazy. Whereas now that's total opposite. Flip, you know. So yeah, hey, I can you. Yeah, go there. I was gonna say. So with doing narrative design, right? Like that's a specialization of like the writing path. But there's probably times where you're also working with someone who's writing or creative directing the game. So maybe can you talk a little bit about that relationship where someone is kind of writing the story and then trusting you with like a, you know, the 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 dynamic relationship between individual characters and, you know, how's the parody work? Does who supersedes who when it comes down to making calls? Yeah, just take me through. <laughs> oh, and, how, uh, and how often you guys actually meet if there is some kind of... Yeah. Well, I mean, for instance... Uh... <sighs> That can go really well or really horribly, as you can understand. But, I mean, that's just working relationships for you. But, you know, when it's working well, um, it's, it's great because um, you've got someone that you can work stuff out with. So say you're – yeah, because I did a lot of this with um, Eric Olofsson at, um, at uh, Path of Exile, and we very much built the concept of the world together, came up with the characters together. Yeah, I would do all the finer details and all the law stuff, but I was always, you know, he was my sounding board for everything. So that's always been a, it's been a really positive um, creative relationship, the two of us. Um, 
and he's great because he's got uh, a slightly more hand. Uh, yeah, yes, does have a hands-off approach. As in, as long as the overall concept and the feel of what we're doing is right, then he's happy to let me, you know, mm. do my thing. And and I always had a quite a lot of creative freedom with Path of Exile, which mm. I've always been really grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had other situations though where the, the creative director kind of you can feel that if they had time and the right experience, they would just do the whole damn thing themselves. And, mm-hmm. but they don't. So they end up telling you to, but then how to do it every single step mm-hmm. of the way. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, that can get really tiring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's if, a nice if, word. That's a nice word. Tiring. Tiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a, yeah, there's a really good balance there. And, uh, I've been lucky. I've been on the flip side of it too. I've been creative director um, um, on one or two game projects and a comic project, and so I sort of learned to yeah, just keep relatively hands off, just kind of steer the ship, but not try and row the oars and do the sails and all that other stuff. <laughs> you wouldn't have oars and sails at the same time anyway, would you? <laughs> Yeah, maybe it, there might not be any wind. You know, still gotta. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I kind of want to oh, talk man. about. Uh, I wonder what your opinion is, right? Uh, Larry and I talk about this all the time. Um, how, like, the narrative in games, especially uh, in triple A and indie, seems to be shifting a bit. Like a lot of the uh, narrative design and single player campaigns are kind of disappearing. You know, the recent things with Naughty Dog, uh, not Naughty Dog, sorry. Well, Amy Hennig from Naughty Dog that works at Visceral, yeah, EA, making the new Star Wars. You know, they completely squashed that project for many reasons, but one of the main reasons being like single player is not so hot anymore. It's hard to sell. You know, there's microtransactions that they try to throw into it or something. But uh, I mean, what's your opinion from being in that? Uh, field like how how do you see the divergent where indie titles are getting more of the story treatment now and more appreciation than the AAA? Mm, I think yeah that's uh, I mean it comes down to economics a lot of it because um, there's no doubt that that big online PvP um, games make a ton of money and they don't need to tell well you know they d- they do need to tell a story, and that's where I think it's rather than a divergence, it's more of a evolution of mm-hmm. what story actually means in games, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, like you look at thing, look at games like um, 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 oh, League of Legends, for instance. Mm-hmm. They've put a ton of effort into the background story, like the world and the characters and things like that, but there's no plot really, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the story's still there, um, but it's allowing the players, you know, lots of players to experience that world, experience those characters without having that weird thing of everybody playing the same story and then mm-hmm. kind of, you know, doing the single player mm-hmm. thing and then getting to do PvP. Writing for League of Legends has got to be so awesome because they're like they have so many characters 
that they can just be like, all right, so my new character design is going to be a cat that like used pizza as a weapon. And how <laughs> this comes like, like they have so many characters and they're so diverse and so different, but they don't have to prove any of it out other than yeah. the character works in the game as a combatant. Right. Like yeah. there's never any interweaving relationships or like story arcs that they have to worry about resolving. It's just this is why this person's badass and this is how you can relate to that person. Now go play. You know, exactly. it's like Exactly. Like so in some ways it's yeah. it's a really smart move because what they're doing is um they're offering identities for the player to just take on and mm-hmm. then let the player be the player and do mm-hmm. what players do, which was pretty much make up their own story. And um, so I think, you know, that those sort of games are kind of leading the way into what I would call procedural narrative, where mm-hmm. um, we're, it's not about plot. It's not about saying this happens, this happens, this happens. It's about going, here's all the pieces. Um, and player, you pretty much put the pieces together however you want we've got an overall plan so you might discover what our plan for all the pieces were but you might discover your own too that you might like that better either way is cool so um it still means you've got to have narrative designers to generate all that stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i think it's i think a lot of writers do find it hard because they have to give up their authorship you know they can't say Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah you you can't tell the player what to do because the player's going to write for you but yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, th- I think it's an interesting move, but um, there's still always going to be a place for really story heavy, quite directed games as well. You know, like the Telltale games and mm-hmm. the stuff that um, like uh, Amnesia and Soma and, you know, those kind of games. Hellblade. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't played that one, but is it like that? Oh. They just won like a award for I think was a story. I think they got a story award. Let me just check really quick before I embarrass myself. That reminds me of something. Um, so, if, but if if you can ha- if you can tell a story, uh, what do you think about this, Brandon? If you can tell a story and and lay it all out in cutscenes and then throw the whole thing on YouTube and then just watch it, is that a game story? No, man. That's you losing money. That's I mean that's pretty much. <laughs> That's pretty much the, 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 the problem that a lot of uh, the games are having now, especially AAA-wise. It's like, if I can watch it on YouTube uh, for the length of the game, then what's the point of buying the thing, right? And there is a place for people to watch Let's Play. Like for me personally, I use it as a long demo version of should I get this game or not, right? Because, you know, what you show at GDC, what you show at E3 or whatever is kind of like, you know, you trying to cheat me as best you can to get me to, like, get hype about it. But me actually seeing someone's reaction from playing it and seeing, like, a good length of time is a great way for me to invest $60 into the game. So I think there is, and obviously... There is a place for streaming games, especially multiplayer, but even single player. But yeah, I think the problem lies is like mo- most gamers nowadays is like, you know, I want to experience this, but not necessarily play it. And you could do that through YouTube. And so if mm. your YouTube gameplay is the same as your gameplay in the game, <laughs> then yeah, of course, it's going <laughs> to fail. And it's it's 
I, I, and like you said, I kind of like what you said. It's like instead of a divergence, it's an evolution in storytelling games. And I do, there's a lot of things that League of Legends and even Overwatch and a lot of these games that have a lot of backstory, but they don't hammer it in. It's kind of like self discovery. If you really want to piece mm. it all together, it's there. Um, I think they're doing it right because obviously they're successful and are able to pump out these amazing games and people love the story. So, I think we need to, yeah, especially now it's, it's getting so expensive. Uh, and like, even with the, the indie titles that are, uh, are able to take these risks and create more story driven, like they should be, um, be careful with the steps of the missteps of like uh, having a YouTube play playing experience. Mm-hmm. Like they should, yeah. especially them because they'll crumble like every five views that you know that that is taken away from them playing the games so that's That's actually yeah that's a really good point whereas you look at games like uh one of my favorites darkest dungeon where um what i think is a beautiful piece of procedural narrative um where you know the characters as you put them under stress and, and go deeper into the dungeons their stress levels get up and they start to crack and they start to um get really interesting um quirks and madness of, you know, someone, some will, uh, become abusive. Some will become megalomaniacs. Um, and that itself is like, you see these characters evolve in front of you and that all adds to the experience. And it's, it's like, I know that I'm pushing these characters to, for that to happen. Like, this isn't a story that's been choreographed for me. Mm-hmm. I'm making the story out of the bits that have been provided. And it's really satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know, you re- you remember those battles when your crusader at the front just goes completely nuts and starts hitting the other um, p- members mm-hmm. of the party. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting, and I, I kind of want to touch on this, but it takes us back a couple of moments. And oh, by the way, uh, it won for Games of Impact. Hellblade won for Games of Impact. Oh, okay. Because they covered mental illness, so that that covers that line or that thread I tried to open up. Now here's a new one. So. <laughs> I do like how you guys say it's the evolution, you know, of story. And it's not so much that, you know, the single player story itself is dying, but just how it needs to be experienced is just evolving, which I think is great, right? Like we have books and people drop books, graphic novels come along, movies come along. Now we have video games in the the way that people can experience story-driven content, but then games itself is evolving. Now we're looking at VR. Uh, people can watch your complete game on YouTube. So the business model of just offering a easy to play you know, one-time use story is probably dying. Mm. But that doesn't mean that the story part is dying, right? Yeah, totally. Like, Uncharted 4, fantastic game. I would buy it again. When they remaster it for PlayStation 5 VR or whatever, I'm going to buy it again. I loved uh, Uncharted 4 Thief's End. And I think that enough people bought that game that warrants people like Naughty Dog to continue to make that type of game some way. Mm. Now, I get it. We're coming to the point in time of game development where, yes, Uncharted 4, you can watch somebody play the whole game, right? But what I want to harp on right now, and I may have mentioned this before, I'm having like a deja vu moment here, but (laughs) I I have to credit these guys. You know, the Octodad team really showed me something. And like, we have these gameplay mechanics that you really want to interact with and try it yourself, regardless of you watching somebody. Mm -hmm. You controlling the Octodad the way that you do 
that's the fun part of the game. It's, the story is kind of piecing together the challenges, but it's still like a heartwarming little story. You know what I mean? So that's led me to think like, yeah, you can still have these great single player experiences, Star Wars included. But like the gameplay that I'm watching, I don't care about how the cutscenes string together. The gameplay is so legit and new and fun that I myself, regardless of seeing it on YouTube, I just have to try it for myself. You know, and I think that that's like the strongest angle moving forward if you're kind of in the let's make a single player game territory. Totally. Because I mean, for instance, like a, a VR roller coaster mm-hmm. is never going to be as cool as actually being on a roller coaster mm-hmm. because yeah. it doesn't have, you know, the G Force and all of those yeah. literal experiences that you're having. So, yeah, it, it is. It's that, that, that hands, hands on the gameplay feel that mm-hmm. is always going to be so important and that you can't capture on YouTube or, you know, any other sort of uh, passive medium. Um, so I guess that's the big challenge, isn't it? For game developers is, um, developing those kind of gameplay mechanics that are so satisfying and and give the right feeling Mm -hmm. and, you know, slight interfere, thrill, whatever they want to go for. And I think where story comes in is really just um, enhancing those feelings. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's one of the big part of, parts of the um, narrative design job is understanding what, what's the feel that we're going for with this game. And, you know, I mean, even in, say, Path of Exile, you, you've, got a, you've got an area where you're just getting hammered by swarms left, right, and center. Um, and they're popping up out of the ground and out of the air, and it's scary. It's genuinely scary because um, you, you know, you're under fire. The job of then the narrative designer is go, how can we take that feeling of being under pressure and then add all the kind of creepy Cthulian elements around it to just make it even scarier? Mm-hmm. So we're working with the working with the mechanics to just enhance the feeling. I've got a question for you there that's going to kind of change a little bit about how we've been having this discussion so far. I think that we've been asking these, you know, really in-depth questions, but I think it's time to switch it up a little bit. So (laughs) I've designed this game. It's called The Fast Five. It's where I'm going to ask you five rapid-fire questions, and I'm going to need you to respond with five rapid-fire answers. It's a very hard game. You know, there's been some casualties, so I have to (laughs) say that (laughs) But are you willing to put your life on the line and play this game? Okay, cool. If my head explodes or something like that, then, you know, be sure to show that. It'll be recorded at (laughs) (laughs) 5.1. All right, sir. Question number one for you. What's the first video game you've ever played? The very first video game I ever played was Air Raid on the 600 XL Atari. All right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's old. <laughs> Question number two: If you could turn on one movie, or if you could turn one movie into a game, what movie would it be? I could turn that Hollywood movie. hasn't already done. Yeah, right. Oh man, or so far, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I ah, uh, let's see. It would have to be maybe like yeah, like a like. I don't know how, but a game version of The Fifth Element, because I just love that mm. film and I love the whole crazy environment of it and the characters. Yeah, I'd love a yeah. science fiction yeah. RPG of that. It'd be brilliant. 
Okay. What was your favorite character that you ever wrote for television or games? Oh, can I do both? Like pick one for sure. each? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. What was your favorite television and then when your favorite game? That was Joey Henderson's Serial Killer. Um, for TV uh, or game? This was for TV. Uh, I got quite lucky. Like two, I was only two weeks on the job. Second week of being a story storyliner, and the producer comes in and says, um, <laughs> "Funnily enough, he said I've got some actors whose contracts are up, and I don't want a reunion. We need a story to get rid of a whole bunch of them all at the same time. I'm introducing <laughs> a serial awesome. killer." <laughs> and uh, he said, "Who's going to research this and come up with this guy?" And I was like, "Yes, me." And so I will kill yeah. these guys for you. <laughs> yes, that's hilarious. So I got to develop a serial killer two weeks into the job. So that was pretty cool. Um, gosh, the best layoff yeah. story I've ever heard. <laughs> You'd be surprised how often that kind of thing happens in TV. Um, as far as games go, my favorite who have developed would probably be oh, Diala. I think it's still Lady Diala from Path of Exile. Mm. She's just um, one of those wonderfully sort of crazy but lucid characters who can. Say, yeah, say bizarre things, but you can get the grains of truth into everyone. And um, yeah, she, she was probably the most fun character to develop. Okay. Last question. You're almost at the finish line. Oh, actually, no, sorry. That was one question too soon. What game franchise do you think? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we did that one. All right. What game franchise would you like to take over for as lead writer? Ooh. If you could just write the rules and not offend any current jobs or employment, whatever, you know, just if you could just write her for a day. <laughs> oh, um, oh, tough question. Um, it's between Space Marshals. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard of Space Marshals. <laughs> it's, it's an awesome little iPad game where you're a space yeah. marshal gunning down space pirates and things like that. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, or um, don't tell the guys at Firaxis but I would love to take over as narrative designer there. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's the one big company I would I would work for. <laughs> we won't tell them. I'm sure they won't listen. <laughs> They'll find out years from now. <laughs> All right, and the very last question for you, sir. And this was submitted by our guests, Chris and Chris, on the Dynamic Duo episode of Game Dev Unchained. They want to know, what was the hardest bug you've ever had to track down? Oh, hardest bug. Well, okay, so narrative, yeah. That's that's tough (laughs) for narrative design because we don't deal with the classic sort of bug. But what we have to do is we have to deal with um, continuity issues. And... um, one of my biggest headaches, it was relatively early on in the job, was working uh, on the Path of Exile second act quest, which was the um, three bandits, the bandit, Lords of Larceny, it's called. And you've got three bandits and uh, Eremir in the village. And you've got to try and work out, like, you can side with each one. There's quest items you can give to each one. And it turns into this whole complicated mess of who said what and who says what at this time, if you've done this and done that and done that and um, trying to iron out the continuity. And that was just um, a nightmare. So yeah, that would, that would be it. I think. Okay. 
Fair enough. That's actually a good answer. I was worried about that one. I was like, if we don't get the right type of person, this question may be like, (laughs) (laughs) hey, CEO, what was the hardest game bug that you ever had to track down? Like, I I would not know. I (laughs) I don't do that. (laughs) All right. So before we finish this, I just need one question for you to ask to our next invited guest to the podcast. So if you have a stumper that you think I can throw at the next couple people, please send one my way. Oh, okay. Um, it would be. Oh man, that's a hard one. <laughs> I'm think, trying to think of something about gameplay and story and how sure. they mix together. It's it would probably be um, if you had to choose between your most beautiful narrative moment and your most beautiful mechanical moment that happened to be in the same place, but one of them's got to go, which would you choose? Mm. All right, I'm writing it down. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but it yeah. exists in the same place. Which one did you have to go? <laughs> so this kind of leads into, uh, I kind of want to get into the process, right? So usually... I would assume as a narrative designer, you're at the very beginning of everything. Um, how often when you come on to a project where, uh, you know, you, you obviously have a lot of experience working on RP, um, RPG. I mean, does it usually start with the world, the lore and everything, and then the gameplay gets inspired from it or vice versa? They have a, like a bunch of gameplay mechanics and then you create a lore. I mean, how often... Is that the case uh, in either situation? Um, it can go kind of go anyway. Uh, like I've had situations where um, your games have had like they've gone, "This is our core mechanic, and we want you to wrap a story about it around it." We we don't even have a setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've got a rough sort of thing, but we yeah, wrap some story around this. Um, I've had other times where, uh, you know, a game dev will have an idea for a story and needs help to, you know, turn that, make that story a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, with the game mechanics. And then the other times I've, I've come in where the world's built, the uh, the gameplay's all in place, you know, and really they just need uh, dialogue scripts and flavor texts and, and, and things like that. So... Uh, I prefer to come in at the beginning because then, you know, help them set the tone and I enjoy that side of things more. But uh, sometimes it's quite nice to come and just write some dialogue too. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but I think as a narrative designer, you have to be prepared to do a bit of everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Which ones do you think out of those scenarios would cause the most problems? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not just for you but overall development is like oh my god what did you do here you're um, like i'm you you know you'd be brought on to just mostly fix things and then start working you know what i mean or is it one of those yeah. like i'm i'm in a hole but it's creatively it's like driving me to think of ways to to you know create solutions i never would have done before you know well, kind of both, yeah. Like um, I've definitely been in that position where I've been served up something that's really challenging to make sense of, mm-hmm. but then it's driven me to come up with solutions that, yeah, I never would have thought of if I hadn't had those limitations in place. So that can be really good. Um, but there are other times where I've had to kind of do a rescue job on an existing narrative that that has either been done by the developers themselves or 
they've brought in a writer who hasn't had previous game experience and that writer's done something quite cinematic or more that's more of a TV story that just does not work in a game. And those are the hard times when I've kind of got to go, oh, okay, we, we can try to make this work and the result's going to be pretty mediocre. Mm-hmm. Or we can throw it out and come up with something that works perfectly for your game. So, yeah, that's probably... If there's existing stuff and it really doesn't work, that's probably the hardest time. Mm-hmm. How how susceptible are they to <laughs> throwing everything out? I mean, is it mostly money, right? Probably time constraints. I mean, how 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 would you get into that conversation where they would be more like, okay, in the end, your your uh, your choice is actually better. <laughs> it kind of depends. Um, if the person who made the mess is still there or if there was a big <laughs> conflict and now he's still gone. in the room how's that <laughs> you just look Let's around the room <laughs> there's always like a balance of like when you're about to shit talk of like yeah. who am i gonna be <laughs> destroying here <laughs> yeah, exactly so i always check that so is, is did any of you write this of the people i'm talking to <laughs> before i launch it um so, you know, if it's been, if they found it really tough along the way, then of course they're really susceptible, right. susceptible to new ideas because they just kind of want to be gone with the old baggage and right. try something new. I see. But I have had other times where, um, you know, this story is one that they wanted to tell for so long and they've got such set ideas about it that it's really hard to kind of get through and just say, hey, we, we, we don't need to throw out the story, but we need to do things differently to make it work. And right. sometimes, you know, they can be so hung up on certain details. Like I've had to walk away a couple of times and just go, okay, I think you just need to mm-hmm. make the story how you want it and <laughs> remember to pay my invoice. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's well, I mean, that's one of the advantages of having five other jobs lined up, right? It's like, all right, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Good luck. <laughs> there is, I mean, and it's just a case of like just recognizing that you're not the right fit for this this right. particular, mm. you know, um, gig. And and sometimes you know the gig could be per- going perfectly smoothly, but it's just like uh, I've had times that I've tried a new genre, and it's just a genre that just hasn't sat well with me. Right. And I've kind of as, as I could kind of wrapped it up and then resolved i'm not going to try that genre again it just you know not my thing yeah so kind of segueing from what we're talking about now and then bringing back a thread that we kind of hinted a little or we laughed at a little bit earlier which was i'm writing the serial killer who's going to kill off these four (laughs) or five actors right like you know ahead of time and the producers know ahead of time that the axe is coming for a couple of characters but do the actors ever find out as early as you do that, like, you know, they may need to start submitting resumes to other shows? Uh, no, it's usually at the uh, the contract negotiation stage, so they don't always know. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and it, honestly, it's exactly the same in the games industry, too, because you might have, especially if it's a reasonably um, long-running game, then you might have voice actors who have been voicing a character like all the way through and then that character has run its course in the game and you just want to ax them mm-hmm. um or there are times when you know player feedback has been we don't really like this voice actor and then 
yeah. you're kind of faced with a hard decision of, okay, well, we're going to have to kill the character off there. A serial killer strikes again. Exactly. <laughs> you ever just <laughs> you start talking to people and you can just see like the axe cut, like, yeah, we're, hmm, yeah, we're going to have to get rid of this guy. <laughs> you can just see that stuff is not working and you know that you're the writer. So you're like, yep, yeah, I'll give him about two or three more episodes. Yeah, man, sometimes. But thankfully, it's not my call. I, I just, right. you know. Uh, wait a minute yeah i'm like uh, i'm not the king i'm the executioner so you know i swing the axe yeah. <laughs> it's not my axe uh, <laughs> so going back to games now uh killing characters is something that's usually very hard to do because you want there to be impact right like you don't want it to just be like oh that one died and i don't care as a player you know i i would assume that you know you want people to care and then you want people to feel the loss so do you yourself have any sort of like ah uh, you know when I'm killing a character, this is some of the things that I try to keep in consideration in building up that character first for maybe some of the other aspiring writers out there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm, I'm going to twist my answer to the question a bit because, sure. I mean, what a minute when you think, you know, uh, kill off a character, you're sort of thinking like main cast member, like mm -hmm. um, character in a, in a in, you know, NPC in the town or mm -hmm. companion and things like that. But actually what I sort of pride myself in doing is um, building up bosses so that they are satisfying kills. Do you know what I mean? Oh. So, so, you know, like, um, because I got frustrated with too many RPGs kind of setting up this named boss that I'm supposed to kill, and I never meet him before. I know, I know mm -hmm. anything about him, and then I just turn up, have this massive fight, and it's over. And it's like, but mm -hmm. he seemed cool. Who was he? So yeah. I wanted to work out how we could actually um, build up these characters so that when the um, when the player gets to them and, and fights them, they actually know who they are, and like there's a bit of kind of meaning and, and lore behind the character. So when they do take them down, they can go, wow, I just knocked over the, you know, the, the long dead Lord of eternal death. And I know exactly what that means because he ruled for a thousand years and blah, 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 blah all that yeah. stuff. But yeah. it just, it, you know, adds this meaning to your actions. So, um, yeah, and you can do that by just using what I call story glyphs, which is just laying in lots of, yeah, books and, carvings and flavor texts and all sorts of things and then if you add an npc dialogue about that that boss um it's amazing how you know the players can get to know them um before the you know final events and then one last thing that i actually think is a little cheesy but you know how in some games when somebody dies they have that like that, that one last line like it was so Poison oh, it? <laughs> <laughs> like, what can writers do and game developers do to kind of, I don't know, like, is there any way to make the actual moment of the death, you know, a little more poignant or more, more interesting, I guess? Do you have any tricks for that, that last cheesy little one-liner that keeps the player going on their quest? Or, totally. Well, you know? I've got one, one thing to definitely not do, and that <laughs> is to have the dying character write a long note as you know they're they're bleeding to death and their guts are hanging out because who does that yeah yeah <laughs> you know um i'll scratch that off my list i won't do that before so so which happens just uh, too often but um yeah so i find to try and get around that moment where i try to avoid actually characters 
dying characters having epic last words because it is such a kind of trope. So it's actually better if um, they almost like die quietly or they can have a big event that kills them, mm. um, but they don't get to say anything about it. And then it's all the other characters in the game that comment on how they went out with a bang mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what they heard them say or and it gets even more interesting if three or four of them have different versions of what they thought they heard them say at the end and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this discussion about it. I think that gives more meaning to it because you can see the world kind of feeling the loss of this character. It's reacting rather than the character having to kind of prove they're important by having these big epic final <laughs> words. I'm going I need to be cut off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Oh, man. I feel like I'm a better writer already. This is awesome. I'm learning so much. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, like, when you're uh, – I'm, I'm very interested in how exactly you start crafting and, and tying all these uh, dialogues and story elements, like, especially at the beginning. Like, is there, like, a special uh, program or application that you use to brainstorm these ideas and, more importantly, like, keep it all together from beginning to finish? Like, mm. it seems so intimidating, especially RPG. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> there's so much story to keep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't, like, unless you have guys who know every part of the story at any given time, like, there's got to be some way that you organize this so that anybody on the team can kind of reference, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, t- totally. Um, and there are tools that you can use. Like, uh, I mean, for... For, for doing branching narratives to, to make sure that you know where all your different plot lines are going and, and what items are popping up where and what characters are being re- interacted with. I use uh, draw.io, just like a, a Google, um, you know, just graphing tool really for creating diagrams. Um, I have have used in the past another uh, bit of software called Workflowy, which is an online one, and it's basically... Yeah, you can create lists within lists within lists, and then you can they're searchable, so you can hashtag them. Mm-hmm. And I found that brilliant for let's say, you know, uh, if we're building up a boss and we need yeah tomes, flavor text, um, bits of uh, dialogue from characters and things like that, then I just put it all into there, and then I just search. So every time I write a new piece about that boss. I search everything we've got so far so that I can get my continuity right and, you know, I'm not repeating stuff and I'm uh, not contradicting what I've already written. So, yeah, so there are some tools you need to, to use. It is amazing, though, how once you've been doing that for a while, your, your brain kind of, I don't know, neurons start aligning. It's amazing how much of it you can actually hold in your head at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, you got you got to have the tools there to share it. Otherwise, you know, if you get hit by a bus, then that's the entire site. <laughs> library just gone. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah. So it's yeah. oh, and Google Docs is great too because um, just um, linking and and making them searchable is is you know mm-hmm. a good way of keeping track of everything too. Yeah, you're not afraid of somebody hacking in and stealing all your ideas. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, nah. <laughs> That's not a thing, right, at all, where you no. don't know. People leak oh, games, but they don't leak, like, 
like man, brainstorming I've heard sessions. of some pretty big games getting their whole story leaked with less security, or with way more security than Google does. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, there was a case, wasn't there? Was it, um, wasn't Half Life 2 or something like one of those ones? There was Half a Call Life of Duty that leaked. suffered it. Oh, was it Call of Duty? Yeah. Oh, there yeah. Was a Call of Duty that suffered that. Wow. That's, true, that's true. That's true. But then again, like, if you're, if, if you're creating a game which has tons of lore but there's no like plot, then mm. if you leak stuff, it doesn't matter because the players are going to yep. find that out yeah, when they're playing yeah. anyway. Yeah. So yeah, Secrets revealed that we talked about the backstory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you've got a big mystery twist that you want to keep hidden, um, yeah, then, then yes, keep the security tight. But as far as taking ideas, it's like, um, I mean, that's another thing I've found. You, you make ideas, you write them down, more ideas turn up, and if some go, you just replace them with others. Right. I, I found there's no such thing as a precious, perfect idea. It's mm-hmm. just, there's always more around the corner. Well, you said a key word that I'm actually very interested in when it comes to writing and design in general, which is twists or plot twists. Do you, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> this may be an unfair question to ask, but how do you go about crafting, like, a really juicy, like, soap opera worthy plot twist cliffhanger moment you know <laughs> in your game for your television oh man um the only way to do that i've found um but i would would not call myself the master of the plot twist um but putting it in you've just got to know what it is before you do anything else you know that mm. we're building up to this twist okay um it was his evil brother with amnesia Okay, so mm-hmm. <laughs> to use a so proper example, you know that that's going to happen, <laughs> and then you just you just put in hints back through everything you do leading up to that moment, mm-hmm. uh, and and yeah, that's the sort of the way to do it. Um, very very seldom can you kind of go along and just hope that a twist turns up that you can then just tack on the end, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think it happens sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Forget everything. I'm the evil brother. Like, oh, (laughs) that's right. Because two chapters ago, he didn't remember this, and then he did this. Yeah, Yeah. those are always fun when you like at the end of the Scooby Doo episode when they start you you start realizing all the little hints and breadcrumbs that were dropped. You know, that's yeah. Whereas if you if you encounter a twist and mm. like, it should exactly make you feel like that like it should make you feel smart it's like oh yeah i i almost had that i noticed all those bits mm. i just didn't quite spot it instead of mm. the big like curve curveball that just goes what where did that come from yeah that wasn't even a hint ever in the story lost yeah, yeah that that's not a twist <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> What the fuck? I didn't watch that? enough the show. But yeah, I've heard. Yeah, just because it's new and I had no idea it was coming doesn't mean it's a satisfying turn yeah, of events. It's not a good twist. That's, that's not a twist. That's a car accident. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. Were there any like really big twists or uh, a narrative like shocker moments that kind of caught you off guard in the last five years of entertainment fiction or just straight up fiction? Uh, sorry, interactive fiction and fiction like stories. Ah, man. Um, uh, spoiler that's a alert. tough one. <laughs> Doesn't matter. So in Game of Thrones, <laughs> we're way past game, anything big right now. Yeah. Yeah. The only game I can think yeah. of that that did that uh, to me was the Stanley Parable um, because I knew nothing about it going in. 
Mm. I thought actually it was even cooler. Like I went into the Stanley Parable and it kind of surprised me at every turn. And then I got to the end of the game and realized, oh, there's a whole bunch of stuff I haven't done. And then so I looked up the walkthroughs and was like, uh, try step off the balcony at this point and just land in this place and try going there. And I did. And it was like, wow, this has just got even more surprising and cool. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that would be the one for me. Anything in oh, movies? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, not off the top of my head, though. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you you know, we, we started this podcast with you talking about how you work remotely, and um, you would usually have a creative director or someone to bounce ideas off of. I mean, how often do you uh, interact with the rest of the team? I'm, I'm sure you're not locked in a room and you don't talk to anybody else. <laughs> but, like, what is that kind of relationship with the rest of the team? I'm sure there's a lot that have ideas, <laughs> either yeah. good or bad. I mean, how receptive uh, and uh, how, um, you know, how much do you let that go in uh, into your, your work? <laughs> Because you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions on on a big team, especially. So, totally. And um, I, I mean, I personally like to listen to to everything because um, I, you know, I know I can't be the only source of ideas on a team. I shouldn't be the only source of ideas on a team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's amazing that you can get great ideas from every angle, but you do have to be prepared to filter out a lot of ideas that someone may personally like, but they haven't looked at the whole context of how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I think an, an idea is only bad if it actually just doesn't fit the context of what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, and a good idea fits in beautifully and, and solves some problem that you've been um, wrangling with. So, um, yeah, on the best teams, that sort of free flow of ideas is great and nobody's judging anybody for the ideas that they're having. Um, but yeah, there's always moments where people get precious about ideas or, um, you know, some of just, you know, aren't prepared to listen and uh, you, you get that on every team, but for the most part, it's been pretty good. So one of the last questions I want to ask is that, you know, um, I'm on an indie team. I want to look for a narrow designer. How about it? Would I go look for one? And what are the things that I should look out for to uh, avoid the bad ones? Yeah. How much exposure do I have to offer? Like, what's the right <laughs> amount of exposure? Yeah, right amount of exposure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, when, when you're really just starting out, then, yeah, I mean, I guess short-term internships and, and doing things like writing audition pieces and all that sort of thing, that's just all half the course. Um I'd advise writers, like, if you're spending, say, any more than four hours on an audition piece, then that's going on too long. Um, and if you've had three meetings and still haven't talked about how you're going to get paid, that's going on too long as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know. I, so true. Now, nowadays, I make it pretty, like, I'm pretty upfront about it. And I yeah. say, you pretty much get your first hour free. And then after that, I'm on the clock. So, right, right, right. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, and in that first hour, we work out, you know, is this going to be a good fit? Right. Um, yeah. 
as far as um, you know, and then, yeah, and the indie devs looking for writers. Um, I mean, I I keep getting found by my website, so I mean, the good old Google search narrative designer mm. is a is a good one, and um, anybody who's popping up with that um, tag is is probably going to have some good experience behind them. Mm. Um, and for new writers, uh, there are groups on Reddit that you can, there are game dev groups on Reddit that you can kind of get involved in. And there are often writers in there who are looking for work. Um, there's Facebook groups as the indie game dev Facebook group, for instance, a couple of them, quite big ones. So yeah, there are places where writers are hanging out and looking for work. When you do, when you are talking to a writer, the very first thing is make sure they do have some game writing experience uh, because the special thing about narrative design is that player will come in and mess up your nicely choreographed story. So you have to be a writer who can handle player agency. And I always, you know, and if, if you're a narrative designer who has never worked on the game, make your own. Like grab uh, Inkscript or Twine or uh, Choice Script or RPG Maker. RPG Maker, exactly. All the like the stuff is pretty writer friendly. You can get your head around it. Make a demo game that you can show to indie game devs, um, because I would say yeah, indie indie game devs. If you're talking to a writer who has never written for a game, don't let them use your game as an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just going to cost you a lot of time, money, and <laughs> and grief. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, I looked down at my clock. It's my I keep my clock on the floor, by the way. I looked down at my <laughs> clock, <laughs> and it says we've been podcasting for over an hour. So, as a customary bonus incentive for you being on this episode we're going to give you what we promised which is direct access to our audience you can shout out promote broadcast or raise awareness for something very important to you or just something that you're involved in so without further ado mr edwin mcgray the floor is yours oh thank you larry um okay well just recently i did write a book on narrative design so it's called narrative design for indies getting started and it's um pretty much a practical intro to just um how you apply story to your um your indie game so that's available now on amazon and kobo and i guess my shout out thing would be i'm i'm a recent convert to inkscript uh which was developed by inkle and I'm also really passionate about the the whole interactive fiction genre, which is doing some really interesting things at the moment. So I'd love to see more writers, narrative designers taking up Inkscript because it's such a writer-friendly um, language and making cool stuff because um, we need all the good stories we can get in interactive fiction. It's a it's, a, it's an old uh, genre, but it, yeah, it needs a lot of development. So yeah, I want to see some good writers and they're using Inkscript if possible. All right. Well, uh, I guess that's it for me. I'm Larry Charles. I'm saying goodnight. This is Brandon Fan. See you guys next week. This is Edwin McRae, and, and thanks for having me on the show, guys. Yeah, thank you for doing this. It's so, so awesome. I'm telling my pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.